Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, and welcome to another episode of Faith in Focus here on the Voice of Islam Radio, the program where we like to take an aspect of faith and examine it according to our everyday lives. And on today's program with me, Smin Rashid Jodri, we will be looking at kingship and caliphates, past and present. What comes to mind when one hears the word king? And then caliph or caliphate? What images and impressions do we conjure up in our heads, and where do these ideas stem from? Literature, culture, history, these all contribute to what kings and kingship means. We can recall fairy tales of kings, queens, princesses and kingdoms. But there is something else too that influences a lot of people with regards to their beliefs and interpretations of the word, and that is religion and faith. Religious scripture and stories are filled with kings, the wise, the need for leadership on earth. And what of the Islamic terms, caliphs and caliphate, or should I say the original Arabic terms, khalifa and khilafat? What do we think of when we hear these words? Perhaps images evoked of this are down to the news and media, interpretations of other people on what a caliphate should be, rather than what it actually is. In the recent past, the way this term has been distorted and misunderstood is largely down to the use of the word by some groups for their own political gain. In actual fact, in Islam, a caliph is a religious and spiritual leader who works for the betterment of society and the spread of peace. 2023 has been an important year in the history of the UK because, as we all may know, after the demise of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest-serving monarch of the United Kingdom, her son, King Charles III, became king. May 2023 saw the coronation of King Charles III, and the month of May is also important for Ahmadi Muslims, not just here in the UK, but worldwide, as it is the month in which we focus on and give special thanks to God Almighty for fulfilling his promise to provide a spiritual successorship on earth for our betterment. For Muslims we have seen in the past, and definitely for Ahmadi Muslims in the present day, a system of successorship or leadership which we call khilafat or caliphate, if we use the anglicised term. This is a spiritual leadership, a peaceful leadership, and a very great blessing. Unfortunately, in recent years, the word caliphate has become synonymous with extremist groups, but on today's programme we will explore the meaning of the word. Also, in the next hour of this Faith in Focus, we will focus in on previous caliphates, what it means to be a leader in these roles, and look at the way these leaders impact our everyday lives. What is it that makes people adhere to or accept the authority of both these roles? Are there any similarities between them? And how do our leaders and their leadership affect us? So, for all this and more, I'm joined in the studio today by Saira Ifadbhati and Atiyah Wahabat. Saira has recently completed a BSc in Neuroscience and has submitted her thesis for MSc course titled Dementia Neuroscience at UCL. Atiyah moved to the UK from Denmark just four months ago. She has a Master's in Biotechnology and is currently working as a Medical Information Specialist. Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you both and welcome to the programme Kingship and Caliphates. Walaikum Islam. So let's start off with what it means to be a king. We can use this word in the context of a kingdom, a ruler. 
But we also have other kings who may not have temporal power. So what do you think of when you hear the words king and kingship? Somehow, I don't associate the current European monarchies with kingship or queenship where I come from, which is Denmark, as it seems their function is more cultural and traditional as opposed to actually running the affairs of a state or the state. Talking of kings who may not have temporal powers, and since you have asked my personal view, I have a little anecdote I would like to share. Mm -hmm. As a child, I used to see the welcoming banner of Here Comes the King on MTA, the satellite channel of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, when our current caliph, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad, would visit various countries. When I asked my mother about this, she told me about the dream the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community had regarding his son Mirza Sharif Ahmad. In this dream, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, was told about his son, and I quote, here comes the king. Now, with the grace of Allah, this son of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, was the paternal grandfather of our current caliph, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. So the dream served as a testament of our caliph being chosen by God. Hearing this story as a child, I have been associating what I would call true kingship with our beloved spiritual leader, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmad. Of course, this is the gist of the story, but this particular part has always stuck with me, and to me a true king is one who leads by example, one who can be seen and touched by the common man. Now, if we take a brief look at the history of kings and caliphates in Islam, because there is a traditional saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he prophesizes the state of the Muslims or his Muslim community in the years to come. And he mentions that there will be a system of caliphate and then kingship, and after that, again, a system of caliphate um, on the precepts of prophethood. So if you can give us a brief overview of what is a khalifa or caliph and a caliphate, what do these terms mean? If I could ask you, Saira. So to begin with, I think it's quite important to note that the Arabic terms of khalifa and khalafat have been transformed into the commonly used English words of caliph and caliphate. Mm -hmm. Usually when we think of such powerful terms, various images come to mind. But as you briefly mentioned, Samin, put simply... In Arabic, khalifa means successor or deputy or vicegerent, and khilafat refers to the Islamic institution of spiritual successorship. The term caliph is an anglicized version of khalifa, and although khilafat and caliphate may appear similar, caliphate implies a political element, sort mm -hmm. of a politico-religious Muslim state governed by a caliph. Now, the Holy Quran makes several references to the term Khalifa and essentially our understanding of Khilafat and how it draws its legitimacy is based on the following verse from chapter 24 verse 56 of the Holy Quran uh, and I'll quote it for you here. Mm -hmm. Allah has promised to those among you who believe and act righteously that he will surely make them successors, Khalifas, in the earth as he made successors from among those who were before them and that he will surely establish for them their religion, which he has chosen for them, and that he will surely grant them security and peace in place of their fear." End quote. So we can see in this verse, the Holy Quran presents an institu the institution of Khilafat as a reward for collective piety. 
it's often interpreted to provide a basis founded upon the democratic lines headed by the Khalifa, whose office is, in principle, elective and bound by the Quran and the Sunnah. Sunnah are the practices of the Holy Prophet of Islam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Moving on to the prophecy you just mentioned of the Holy Prophet of Islam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The specific words are as follows. Prophethood shall remain among you as long as Allah shall will. He will bring about its end and follow it with Khilafat on the precepts of prophethood for as long as he shall will and then bring about its end. A tyrannical monarchy will then follow and will remain as long as Allah shall will and then come to an end. There will follow thereafter monarchical despotism to last as long as Allah shall will and come to an end upon his decree. There will then emerge Khilafat on precept of prophethood. End quote. So we can see in this hadith or saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the promise of Khilafat is connected with prophethood on two separate occasions. Mm-hmm. In between the two eras of Khilafat, the reference to the tyrannical monarchy and monarchical despotism is what we would term as caliphate. Mm-hmm. Most of the Muslim monarchs in those times used the title of Khalifa, but in fact they had digressed from following the precept of prophethood. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Arabic words showing the relationship between Khilafat and Prophethood in this saying are Khilafat Allah minhaj nabuwa, that is, Khilafat on the precepts of Prophethood. This means that a Prophet's true successors, Khulafa, uh, which is plural for Khalifa, would continue to follow the example of the Prophet and lead the believers in the same way as the Prophet guided them. This elucidates the principle that Khilafat in its essence is a continuation of the mission of the Prophet. Mm. The objectives of Khilafat and Prophethood remain the same. In fact, the Holy Quran makes it quite clear that the main objective of Prophethood is the moral and spiritual development of mankind. I see. Thank you, Saira. That was a very in-depth explanation. So in the time of the four rightly guided caliphs or khalifas of Islam, we see that the Muslim community grew, um, flourished and was consolidated in many ways through policies and social programs that helped create harmony in society. So for example, under the caliphate of Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, there was a system of government, a treasury, and even what could be termed as welfare for his people. So we see that the Muslims were now forging an organized, structured and cultured society for themselves, which was far from the tribal warfare that prevailed before. But these were caliphs or khalifas, not kings, and although Islam was spreading far and wide during their time, and more and more people were joining the fold, still it was not a kingship. You are quite right. Islam introduced what one could call the early welfare system in Hazrat Umar's time. Mm. There were four rightly guided caliphs who followed the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The first Khalifa or successor was Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq. The second, Hazrat Umar bin Khattab. The third was Hazrat Usman Ghani. And finally, the fourth Khalifa or successor was Hazrat Ali bin Abi Talib. May Allah be pleased with them all. Hazrat Abu Bakr earned the title Siddiq, which means honest or loyal, Mm -hmm. as he was the first man to confirm truth of the claim of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. 
True to his earned title, he stood loyally and devotedly at the side of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, through peace and war, upon migration from Mecca to Medina when the environment had become too hostile for Muslims, Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, accompanied the Holy Prophet on this journey. Hazrat Abu Bakr was elected the first Khalifa, or Caliph, of Islam. During the Khilafat, or Caliphate, of Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, victories secured Muslims governing lands further north, deeper into the Middle East. Hazrat Umar Farooq, may Allah be pleased with him, was the second rightly guided Khalifa, he was a renowned businessman and initially a fierce opponent of Islam. During his rule, vast areas of Iraq, Syria, and Egypt came under Muslim rule. Furthermore, the city of Jerusalem in Palestine was conquered. Hazrat Umar's, may Allah be pleased with him, Khilafat, marked a golden era in the history of Islam as he established a system of administration for the Islamic State, as mentioned by Samin earlier. The council established by Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, chose the third Khalifa or successor to be Hazrat Usman Ghani, may Allah be pleased with him. He earned his title Ghani, which means generous or bountiful, due to his generosity for the poor. He had entered the fold of Islam because of Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, preaching the beauty of Islam to him. During Hazrat Umar's Khilafat, his forces fought off the Romans multiple times, and as a result, the hold of Iran, Asia Minor, and Egypt came under Muslim control. During his Khilafat, a navy and an Islamic fleet were established. He was martyred while reciting the Holy Quran. Mm. The fourth rightly guided Khalifa was Hazrat Ali bin Abi Talib. May Allah be pleased with him. He was the son of the uncle of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. His parents took care of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he became an orphan. Hazrat Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, was brave and a skilled warrior, and he was chosen to be the Khalifa at a time when there was no law and order in Medina, and he actually set out to reestablish that peace. Hazrat Ali was also martyred. Thank you. So just to remind our listeners that you are listening to Faith in Focus here on the Voice of Islam Radio, where today we are talking about kingship and caliphates. And if you'd like to learn more about what we have been talking about with regards to the caliphates of the four rightly guided caliphs in Islam, or indeed about the Ahmadiyya Khilafat, then do stay with us as we explore more in the program. You can also head over to SoundCloud and listen to previous Faith in Focus programs, as well as other shows on the topic, which have covered this in detail. You are listening to Faith in Focus. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, said, Be generous to the one who is miserly to you, and be forgiving to the one who abuses you. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. So, after the four rightly guided caliphs, we then enter the stage where there were Muslim rulers and indeed some of the greatest empires have had Muslim leaders or emperors. Um, Saira, could you tell us more? Yes, of course. So in early Islam, right after the end of the rightly guided caliphs, 
The title of Khalifa was borne by the 14 Umayyad kings of Damascus. So reading upon this, we actually find that this began around 661 AD when Muawiyah founded the Umayyad dynasty by force and was thus the first political leader to initiate a caliphate, kind of like in the sense of hereditary monarchy. Mm-hmm. His son, Yazid I, then became caliph in 680 AD, although many attributed that he didn't really have the moral integrity for being a khalifa. Mm-hmm. So we can see a new phase in Islamic history had started, which led to kingship to be run by the members of the Umayya family. Then, in 749 AD, the Abbasid, which, who were descendants of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's uncle, mm-hmm. Hazrat Abbas ibn Abdul Mutlib, overthrew the Umayyad and retained power for the next five centuries. They spanned 38 Abbasid monarchs of Baghdad from the time of 750 AD to 1258. After the fall of the Umayyad dynasty, the title was also assumed by the Spanish branch of the family who ruled in Spain in Cordoba from 755 to 1031 and by the Fatimid rulers of Egypt from 909 AD to 1171. So we can see there existed multiple contemporaneous caliphs from the 7th to 12th centuries. The last Abbasid caliph of Cairo was captured in 1517 by the Ottoman Sultan Selim I. The Ottoman Sultans then claimed the title of Khalifa and brandished it for four centuries until it was abolished in 1924 by Mustafa Kemal, the founder of the Turkish Republic. So we can see this new phase of Islamic history is quite distinct and quite different from Khilafat. These caliphs were successful political leaders but not necessarily men of moral integrity with full religious knowledge. Mm. And so we see hereditary monarchy essentially eroded the true nature of Khilafat, and it transgressed into a royal caliphate. There were internal conflicts, there were rebellions, there were rivalries that led to oppression, and there was lots of bloodshed. So slowly and gradually, the institution of caliphate lost much of its legitimacy in the eyes of the Muslim world of the time. And then, of course, we saw this continue when Muslims had gained land, power and influence with empires in different parts of the world. For example, we had the Safavid Empire in Persia, or modern-day Iran, um, the Mughals in the Indian subcontinent, and the Ottomans of Turkey, um, which you've mentioned. And here we did have religion and leadership along with many other aspects that were part and parcel of being kings at the time. For example... Um, as you've alluded to, the struggle for power, factions at court, expansion, battles and war, trade, buildings and so much else. So let's fast forward now many years to present day and we have the second manifestation of God's power, according to Ahmadi Muslims, of this divine successorship. So Atiyah, what can you tell us about this second manifestation of God's power? So the term second manifestation of God's power refers to the second era of Khilafat or successorship in Islam. So Khilafat is referred to as a manifestation of God's power. Mm -hmm. The first manifestation being the four rightly guided Khalifas that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. After the passing away of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, whose advent had been foretold by the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, this second era of Khilafat came to pass. But before diving deeper into that, I would like to talk a little bit about 
the concept of Khilafat or spiritual successorship in the Holy Quran as quoted by Saira earlier. Mm -hmm. In the Holy Quran, chapter 24, verse 56, um, in this verse, God tells us how the promised bright future of Islam will take a material shape. God refers to obedience to the Caliph as being necessary to portray obedience to Allah and his messenger. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. In this verse, God also says, Surely give them in exchange security and peace, promising spiritual and temporal leadership, which in turn depends on the Muslims observing prayer and giving alms and obeying the messenger of God. The verse also speaks of the importance of caliphate to the end of time, including all caliphs following the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, including the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, and his successors. Caliphs are chosen by God, by the hearts of believers being inclined towards the caliph. Amidst hardships, caliphs enjoy peace of mind and worship God alone, carrying out their duties without discouragement. In his book titled The Will, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, explains the second manifestation of God's power to be the Khilafat that would follow him and simultaneously tells all Muslims to stay engaged in prayer for the second manifestation to be sent by God. So the first Khilafat of the promised Messiah, peace be on him, from the second manifestation of God's power was His Holiness, Hakim Nuruddin. May Allah be pleased with him. He established the unity of the community. The second successor, His Holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, known as the Promised Reformer, he introduced many improvements into the administration of the community. The third Khalifa was His Holiness Mirza Nasir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him. He stood as a great leader and guide when the then government of Pakistan declared the Ahmadiyya Muslim community non-Muslim. The fourth Khalifa was His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him. Among other things, he launched the first Muslim satellite television network, and he migrated to the UK from Pakistan when the political situation was made intolerable. The fifth and current Khalifa, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, is daily guiding, inspiring, and leading the community. Yes, indeed. So as Ahmadi Muslims, we are extremely fortunate to accept the second manifestation of God's power and, of course, the fulfillment of the prophecy of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Nowadays, unfortunately, the word caliphate has become synonymous with terrorism and an archaic system of rule that is perhaps after land and territorial power. But the images that some people may conjure up in their minds are so far removed from what a caliphate actually is and what a khalifa is. In fact, nothing could be further than what we know and recognize as khilafat. So how would you describe khilafat, the Ahmadiyya khilafat, to our listeners? Well, this is a very profound question. Personally, for me, I see khilafat as a source of unity a sense of commitment to peace, to love, and a service to humanity. It is an institution that has endured for over a century now, uninterrupted, and it stands as a testament to the divine promise fulfilled, as mentioned in my earlier response. Mm -hmm. Khilafat is not a political or territorial authority. It is a spiritual and moral authority that today binds millions of Ahmadi Muslims worldwide under the banner of a single leader, his Holiness Mirza Masoor Ahmed, current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, 
who knows us both individually and collectively. Mm. He prays for us, he counsels us, he guides us through many of life's challenges, and his love for us is immeasurable. He leads with a heart full of compassion. Mm. Not only this, but the institution of Khalafat plays a pivotal role in fostering education, in promoting interfaith dialogue, interfaith understanding, mm. and maintaining harmony with one's community. For me, it is a source of enlightenment. It offers direction on both religious and worldly matters. Mm. It's almost as if you imagine a vast and diverse family spread all across the globe. Millions of people from different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures, all bound by the common thread of faith. This family is united by a spiritual connection that transcends borders. In fact, the essence of Khilafat lies in its commitment to peace. Our Khulafas have tirelessly worked towards fostering peace, not just within our community, but in the world at large. They have reached out to countless world leaders, emphasizing the importance of global harmony and justice. Mm. Their efforts to eradicate extremism and to promote interfaith dialogue are quite inspirational, and delivering speeches at many locations, including Capitol Hill, and the Hague. Mm. Well, you have given us an overview of the previous caliphs or khalifas of Ahmadiyyad. Time now to turn to Qudsiya with a short report on our present khalifa, supreme head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat or His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. Hazrat, for the benefit of our listeners, is a term meaning His Holiness, which is why in English we sometimes refer to him in this way. Mirza is a family name with its origin in Central Asia, and His Holiness's given name is Masroor Ahmed. Just like after the names of other holy and respected people in Islam, we have salutations. In the same way, after the name of His Holiness, we have an Arabic term, which translates as, may Allah be his helper. With that being said, let's learn more about him. His Holiness was born on 15th September 1950 in Jabba, Pakistan, to the late Mirza Mansoor Ahmed and the late Nasra Begum Ahmed. Upon completing his master's degree in agricultural economics in 1977 from the Agriculture University in Faisalabad, Pakistan, His Holiness formally dedicated his life to the service of Islam. From 1977 to 1985, His Holiness served in Ghana, engaged in social, educational and agricultural development projects. He is accredited with successfully growing wheat on Ghanaian soil for the first time in the nation's history. His Holiness returned to Pakistan in 1985 and served in various senior administrative posts within the community during the next 18 years, including as Chief Executive of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community in Pakistan from 1997 until his election as Khalifa. Following his election in 2003, His Holiness was forced into exile from Pakistan, his native country. Pakistan's constitution and penal code restricts members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community from practicing or associating with Islam or from even identifying themselves as Muslims. Violations of these repressive laws results in fines, imprisonment and potentially capital punishment. Consequently, the legislation prevents His Holiness from fulfilling his duties as head of the community and accordingly he is unable to return to Pakistan. 
His Holiness resides in Surrey, UK, with his wife. He has two children and five grandchildren. His hobbies include gardening, reading, photography and walking. Since being elected Khalifa, His Holiness has led a worldwide campaign to convey the peaceful message of Islam through all forms of print and digital media. Under his leadership, national branches of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community have launched campaigns that reflect the true and peaceful teachings of Islam. Ahmadi Muslims the world over are engaged in grassroots efforts to distribute millions of peace leaflets to Muslims and non-Muslims alike, host interfaith and peace symposiums, and present exhibitions of the Holy Quran to present its true and noble message. These campaigns have received worldwide media coverage and demonstrate that Islam champions peace, loyalty to one's country of residence and service to humanity. His Holiness takes a particular interest in alleviating the suffering of developing nations by helping to improve their agriculture and facilitating access to food, clean water and electricity. He oversees the work of the International Association of Ahmadi Architects and Engineers, IEEE, an organisation briefed with leading various humanitarian and development projects in remote areas of the world. The scope and expertise of this organisation has grown at a rapid rate under his leadership. Likewise, His Holiness supports the work of Humanity First, an international non-profit disaster relief and development charity and other such organisations. Under the leadership of His Holiness, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has built a number of schools and hospitals that provide high-class facilities in remote parts of the world. And through various schemes of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness has funded the tuition and education of numerous underprivileged students around the world, irrespective of their religious background. His Holiness receives thousands of letters every day from Ahmadi Muslims worldwide, seeking his guidance in prayers. As well as responding to all such letters, His Holiness meets with individual members of the community on a daily basis. Every week His Holiness delivers a Friday sermon in which he addresses all members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community worldwide. The sermon is broadcasted globally live on MTA International, an Ahmadi Muslim satellite television station established in 1994 and translated into various languages. MTA International is also streamed live on MTA.tv and Al-Islam. The Friday sermon is available in over 18 languages in video-on-demand format, his Holiness uses his sermons to counsel Ahmadi Muslims about various issues of importance. Welcome back to Faith in Focus, where today our topic is kingship and caliphates. Now, in terms of religions, we have many references to kings, and perhaps this is because there have been religious people in the past who have been in a position of power as well and have ruled. Many rulers have indeed used religion as their claim or right to govern. If we think about the monarchy in the UK, for example, we see that the monarch is also head of the church. So even in the 21st century, where fewer and fewer people are believing in a god, still we have an institution that is very much linked with religion, and religion gives it its legitimacy. 
Of course, 2023 has been an important year in the history of the UK because it is the year that saw the coronation of King Charles III after the demise of his mother, the longest-serving monarch in Britain, Queen Elizabeth II. King Charles III, when he was Prince of Wales, was known to make some comments about how he wanted to be known as defender of faith rather than defender of the faith. And indeed, right up until his coronation, there was talk that this traditional title would be changed and that the coronation ceremony would in fact be a multi-faith one and would feature other religions as well. And there were some who welcomed this move as a reflection of the changing British society that we have now. But there were many others, including some Anglican church members, that strongly opposed it. This legitimacy is not something exclusive to the UK. In fact, we can see from history all over the world that many rulers have used religion to legitimise their claim or their rule. I'm thinking of the emperors, for example, from the Muslim world, the Mughals or the Ottomans, who also had titles such as Keeper of the Keys to the Two Holy Cities, which is referring to the cities of Mecca and Medina, two of the holiest cities in Islam. They had titles that were close to Defender of the Faith or Leader of the Faithful, Amir al-Mu'mineen. And this latter title is, of course, something that Muslims who are members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community will recognise because it is a title that for Ahmadiyya Muslims, in essence, belongs to His Holiness, Supreme Head of the Worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. Although, of course, he is Khalifa or Caliph and not seeking any sort of land or temporal power. So already we can see that there is a lot of fluidity, I suppose, or movement when it comes to religion and the idea of kingship. So if we look at the religious aspect and focus in on the word or title, indeed, of defender of the faith, which, as I mentioned, recently caused a stir when it was thought that perhaps King Charles III would change the title, which was interpreted as him moving away from the Anglican Church to a position which recognised the changes in British society and the diversity that can be found here, including the diversity in faiths and religions as well. So, Syrah, can you tell us a little bit about the history of this title, Defender of the Faith? Yes, so the title Defender of the Faith has quite a rich and intriguing history, and it seems to stretch back to the reign of King Henry VIII in the early 16th century. Now, the story behind this title begins with Henry VIII's fervent defence of Catholicism Mm -hmm. and his opposition to the Protestant Reformation. The title was actually conferred on King Henry VIII by Pope Leo X on October 11, 1521, as a reward for the king's pamphlet, which was titled Declaration of the Seven Sacraments Against Martin Luther, written against the German theologian Martin Luther, whose ideas helped to shape the Protestant Reformation movement during the 16th century, and thus Henry defended the Catholic Church. Mm. Now, Pope Leo was evidently pleased with his work because it was only a few weeks after its presentation that he issued the papal bull, which is an official letter or document, conferring on Henry the title Defender of the Faith. Now, the language of the bull was particularly glowing in its praise of the English king, with the Pope declaring, and I have the quote here, Mm -hmm. Having thus weighed and diligently considered your singular merits, we could not have devised a more suitable name, nor one more worthy of your majesty, than this most excellent title, which whenever you hear or read it, 
you shall remember your own virtues and highest merits. End quote. But we know that only a decade after Leo X issued the papal bull, Henry decided to break away from the Church of Rome following Pope Clement VII's refusal to annul his marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. He also distanced himself from the pamphlet he wrote, so he claimed that his bishops had manoeuvred him into writing it. Mm -hmm. And so his actions ultimately resulted in his excommunication by Pope Paul III in 1538, and he was stripped of the title Defender of the Faith. However, towards the end of Henry's reign in 1543, the English Parliament passed an act that restored the title for him and for his successors. Since then, it has continued to be used as part of the styling of British monarchs to indicate their role as head of the Church of England. So what do you make of the more modern debate that was particularly prominent around the time of the coronation of King Charles, when there was a lot of talk about how the ceremony itself was going to be multi-faith, and that perhaps a king wants to be known as defender of faith, not the faith? It seems to me, from what I have read about King Charles III so far, and I'm thinking of a recent publication by Catherine Pepinster, who wrote a book called Defenders of the Faith. And in it, she goes through the origins of this title, um, as you've as you've explained, Syrah. And the book talks also about the faiths of the monarchs and how they impose that faith on their subjects, um, where, of course, we moved from Catholicism to Protestantism and back and forth up until the present day where the monarch is head of the Church of England and vows to uphold the Protestant faith. So the book also talks about King Charles in his younger years and in and his religious thinking and inclinations um, and his interests when it comes to matters of faith. But coming back to this title, Defend of the Faith, again, it is there to give legitimacy to the rulers, is it not? Even the late Queen Elizabeth II believed that this was her calling, that her role as queen was one of service, and she was deeply religious in the sense that she was not shy to refer to her religious beliefs, She, in fact, in her Christmas broadcasts, for example, and other events too, made references to her own personal faith. So this idea of leadership being from God certainly has, especially in the past, given the British monarchy legitimacy to rule. And they are not the only ones. We mentioned earlier the Muslim empires, and these emperors too had similar titles or previous kings as we know in Europe too. We have the example of um, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, under whose rule there was the Spanish Inquisition. The idea that somehow the kings and rulers have to be godly people, morally just, and also standard bearers of faith, if you like, this has not changed much until perhaps recent times. The late queen was um, also very open about her Christian faith, There were problems for King Charles III with regards to his second marriage, as indeed there were for other royals too before him. Um, And this was perhaps because they were considered role models for society, which included living within the boundaries of faith as well. This is part of their identity and I think their legitimacy to rule. Who knows how this will play out in the future, perhaps with the decline of religion and faith overall in society, which we witness, there may be another shift in the expectations we have on the royals or or on how they should behave or the standards by which they should live their lives. Maybe in the future, religion will no longer play such an important part and nor will they be held accountable for it. 
But for the time being at least, as the debate around the king changing his title or indeed having different faiths as part of his coronation showed, that religion for many is still part and parcel of the identity of the British monarch and it is a very important factor. What are your thoughts, Ira? Yeah, so the role of religion, especially in the identity and legitimacy of the British monarch, is undeniably a subject of great debate and evolution. Now, historically, as you've just mentioned, the British monarchy has been intrinsically tied to the Church of England, with the title Defender of the Faith emphasising this connection. And the monarch has long been seen as a spiritual leader, not just a political one. Mm -hmm. However, we can see as society has evolved, so has the monarchy's relationship with faith. Now, like many Western nations, the UK has become increasingly diverse and secular. And this diversity has raised questions about how the monarchy, as an institution, adapts to a multi-faith and multicultural society. With the reign of King Charles III and discussions about a multi-faith coronation like you just mentioned, we see the monarchy addressing the changing religious landscape of the nation. So the inclusion of various faiths in the ceremony also highlighted the need for a more inclusive approach that respected the belief of all citizens. As for the future, the importance of religion in the identity of the British monarch may continue to evolve. So the monarchy as an enduring institution must navigate the delicate balance between tradition and progress, while also respecting the changing religious and cultural dynamics of the nation. While religion has historically been a significant part of the British monarch's identity, its importance is transforming in response to changing societal norms and the need, as we see today, for greater inclusivity. Now, the role of the British monarchy as a symbol of unity and continuity will undoubtedly remain, but the form it takes in relation to faith may continue to evolve in response to the broader cultural shifts within the United Kingdom. Mm. So, when it comes to legitimacy to rule, it must come from a higher being or God. With the system of Khilafat, we can see that this um, is the case too, where of course we believe the leadership is from God. So what can you tell us about how a Khalifa is chosen? Because that is another key difference, isn't it, between them? This is not a hereditary system, unlike monarchies, and neither can authority be challenged nor is there room for abdication and so on. So, Atiyah, if I could ask you to explain. Yeah, you're very right. Khilafat is, isn't a hereditary system. Rather, as mentioned a couple of times earlier, the Holy Quran, chapter 24, verse 56, categorically states that it is from Allah, and he promises Khilafat would be established among Muslims as it was established before. In Islam, there is no concept to inherit the office of Khilafat from one's father or relative. While there is human involvement in the selection or electoral process of a Khalifa, Muslims firmly believe Allah appoints a Khalifa. The Arabic word for caliphate, Khilafat, means succession, and the caliph is a successor to a prophet of Allah. Their goal is to complete reformation and continue moral training, seated by the prophet, Subsequently, the community of followers carry out their faith and practices under their guidance. 
the necessity for Khilafat lies in the reformation of society, as the span of one human life cannot encompass this mammoth task. So Ahmadi Muslims believe that God's choice of who should become a Khalifa is manifested through the selection by a group of pious people, members of the Electoral College, whose hearts and faculties are guided by God. After selection through the electoral process, a Khalifa is for life as a living testament to divine will. A Khalifa takes into consideration the views of members of his community. He is elected to the office by voting by the members of the Electoral College, which was established for this purpose by His Holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. During the life of the Khalifa, the Electoral College works under his supervision, but after his passing away, they become a completely independent body. During election, names are proposed and seconded to enter. Then votes are cast by raising of hands. Thank you, Adia. That's very interesting, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners would have found it um, found it interesting as well. This is a common question that comes up when people hear about Ahmadi Muslims or when they come to visit our mosques, for example, and they see the photos of the Khulafa, plural of Khalifa. Um, for for example, here in the Battle Fadul Mosque complex, where where we are seated today, where our studios are, we have pictures of the Ahmadiyya Khulafa in the corridor. And I would just like to point out, they are not paintings, uh, but they are photos, and they are not in the main mosque um, where the salat or prayer or any type of worship occurs. So coming back to the coronation of King Charles, um, there was an addition this uh, for this coronation, and it was called Homage of the People. And it was a new addition to the ancient ceremony where everyone was invited to swear an oath of allegiance to the king. Now again, this was met with mixed reactions. Lambeth Palace, which is the official London residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, said it was hoped that the significant change to, to this historic service will result in a, and I quote, great cry around the nation and around the world of support for the king, end quote. From those watching on television, online, or gathered in the open air at big screens. And a spokesman for the palace said that the homage is, and again I quote, very much an invitation rather than an expectation or request, end quote adding that people might join in if it feels that it is right for them, as they would take part in the national anthem, for example. He also said that it was simply an opportunity offered by the Archbishop so that, unlike previous coronations, those who wished to join in with the words being spoken by the Abbey congregation could do so in a very simple way. But there were many who thought it was backwards, um, not relevant to today's age, who didn't want to pledge allegiance to the king or indeed his heirs. Um, And for example, Graham Smith, who's a spokesman for Republic, which campaigns for the abolition of the monarchy and its replacement with a directly elected head of state, he said, um, and I quote, in a democracy, it is the head of state who should be swearing allegiance to the people not the other way around, end of quote. So going back to the homage of the people, with this news coverage and the commentaries leading up to King Charles's coronation and on the day of the event as well, many were opposed to this new homage. It seemed to me 
to be a bit late to add and perhaps wasn't so clear. And also, I think for many people, the role of the monarch is not so clear in everyday life either. Perhaps this is why there was um, such a mixed set of reactions. For some people who follow the monarchy and who are royalists, they will see that the monarch is a leader and a great asset to the nation. But then, of course, we have the other side who want to go as far as um, abolishing the monarchy and they see it as a waste of money. And maybe all of this comes from the way we interact with or the way we feel the impact the monarch has in our lives. And this is, of course, true with any leader. If we feel we can connect or that they have some importance, then, of course, our feelings will be different and will make us want to pledge allegiance to them. I'm not sure that the homage in the end had the effect that some intended. Indeed, for us Ahmadi Muslims, we really do have words that result in a great cry around the nation, even around the world, actually. When um, when we pledge our allegiance to the Khalifa of the time, and we take an oath as well, and it's really an emotional event for many who are part of it. It is very moving to watch and to hear, even if you are not part of the community, and it really is when everyone um, does say the words of the pledge in unison, there is a cry, I suppose, that does ring loud and it is heard across the land. So when I heard about the plans for this new homage in the coronation, it reminded me of of our, our pledge to our Khalifa. And also perhaps that the effect that they wanted in the coronation was akin to the way Ahmadi Muslims feel and pledge without us even trying. So... Bad ceremony, the initiation ceremony, takes place annually at Jalsa Salana, which is our annual convention, and it's truly something to behold. It is a pledge of allegiance, a profound expression of faith, of devotion and commitment, of course, to the spiritual leader of the community, the Khalifa. Imagine tens of thousands of Ahmadis from all around the world coming together, creating an atmosphere that is charged with unity, spirituality and devotion. Now, the bed holds immense significance for us Ahmadi Muslims. Mm -hmm. It's a heartfelt commitment to follow the guidance of the Khalifa and also to strive for the betterment of oneself and society. Now, the bed actually has quite a rich history. So, it was initiated during the time of the Promised Messiah, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who founded the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. The very first formal bed took place in 1889 in Ludhiana, which is in India, with His Holiness Hakim Maulvi Nuruddin, the first head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, taking the first ever bed, and he was accompanied by a group of 40 individuals. If we fast forward to today, this ceremony has grown to include millions of followers worldwide, virtually slash via satellite link. Now, one may ask, what does the bed signify? Well, the bed is not just a simple pledge, it's a commitment to follow the teachings and directors of the Khalifa, our spiritual leader, in both matters of faith and worldly affairs. It's a tangible expression of the importance of divine guidance and leadership through the Khalifa. Also, it is an expression of showing loyalty to one's country. And it's a unifying ceremony. It binds together our entire community in a collective commitment and almost, you can say, a collective consciousness. As we gather at Jalsa, the annual convention, the collective recita recitation of the bed fosters a profound sense of unity 
and solidarity among attendees. Despite our different backgrounds, mm. our different regions of origin, different languages, during the ceremony, we stand together in shared devotion and commitment, reinforcing the global bonds of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. But it's important to know it's not just a formal ceremony. As you mentioned, it's a very, very emotional experience. Mm. The collective recitation, often I look around this tears in the eyes of many participants, including myself, mm. and it signifies the depth of our faith and our devotion. It's a very powerful expression of our faith in Allah and the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, our belief in the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, and yes, of course, our allegiance to the Khalifa and the values of our community. And I can tell you from personal experience, there is seldom a dry eye in the house. Mm, absolutely. And as an Ahmadi Muslim and a loyal citizen to the UK, I consider myself lucky to live under the protection of Khilafat or the Caliphate and spiritual leadership of His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, and geographically close too with him residing in Surrey, but also under the monarchy. My beloved Khalifa, His Holiness, is close to my head and heart. He is a leader that is accessible for his and all people. We can write to him, we we visit him. He is in touch with what is going on in the world and therefore his guidance and his words are very, very relevant. So can I ask you both, what role has the Khalifa had in your personal life? And the reason I ask is because there is a very different relationship between a Muslim and their Khalifa, although there may be some aspects that look the same in terms of kingship. It seems to me a much more personal connection, one that is ruled by the head and heart, as opposed to someone proclaiming their authority. Adia, if I can ask you first. Yeah. Um, I think besides all the interesting and thought-provoking differences we have discussed today between monarchy and khilafat or caliphate. Another major difference is the reachability to the khalifa, as you did mention. I have been blessed to grow up with parents who have instilled in me the habit of writing to the khalifa. Often there is an ease of heart upon sending off the letter before even receiving a reply, even before the letter lands in front of our dear khalifa. Mm. On the blessed occasions, it is even possible to meet with the khalifa of our time. For me, Khilafat, Caliphate, has been part of the rope that connects me to God. I find peace and comfort in knowing that we have a leader that if we pay heed and listen to him, will always know the right way. Mm. He creates a sense of comfort and serves as an umbrella over the entire community as well as individual families. Furthermore, I actually also look for answers to questions I have through our dear Khalifa. When my research regarding any subject, especially Islam, renders too complicated, I go looking for answers by the Khalifas, whether it be the fourth Khalifa, usually on askislam.org, where his Q&As are compiled and divided into subjects, or our current Khalifa, may Allah be his helper, for which there are now several programs on MTA and YouTube, including This Week with Huzur or Weekend of Guidance, the answers are always backed by knowledge and logic, and research will even provide references. Guidance by our Khalifa, His Holiness Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, gives me a sense of security and hope. Thank you, Adya. Saira, what about you? So, 
The Khalifa has had quite a profound impact on my life, a huge impact, of course. Whether this be through his beloved guidance via family meetings with him, or through his reply to my letters, letters in which I feel confident to share any worries I might be experiencing, any anxieties, any trials I might be facing. I find solace that I can share whatever news, whether it's happy news, an achievement or sad news, I will always receive a reply. It's like a sigh of relief for me. Mm. I find my prayers being answered immediately. I type the letter and without even printing or sending it off, I find peace and comfort. My prayers are always answered. I feel at peace knowing that I have a lead, someone to look up to, someone who inspires me and offers me guidance on any matter, whether it be big or small. The Khalifa is a constant in my life, a spiritual role model. As a matter of fact, I received my name, Saira Ifat, which one can say is quite an integral part of one's identity, mm-hmm. from His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Also, Recently, I've completed my master's degree. Now, our beloved Khalifa has time and again motivated us to pursue a higher education and education in general, especially encouraging women to excel in their respective fields and professions. Thank you so much to both of you for coming down and being part of our discussion today on kingship and caliphate. You have been listening to Faith in Focus here on the Voice of Islam Radio with me, a writer and host, Samin Rashid Jodri, along with my guests, Saira Ifadbati and Atiyah Wahabat, and Kutsia Ahmed with the report. Until next time.